Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Happy, happy, happy New Year. I am hoping this year is one that treats you well, where you get to enjoy having some semblance of sanity and that you have good health and lots of happiness and friendship and connection. And speaking about connection, I was noticing we've connected with a lot of people all over the world. This past month, there have been a lot of people listening in Canada, Australia, Ireland, the Netherlands, and Sweden. Once again, if you're from any of those parts of the world, be sure to write in. Let us know what you like about the show and why you're interested and maybe how it's tied in with your country of origin. Today on the show, we have Ruan Mipagala. He is a podcaster and coach. In his early 20s, he became involved in the matriarchal cult known as One Taste, which was recently covered in the Netflix documentary Orgasm Incorporated. Ruan describes his time with the group as one of the most formative experiences of his life, giving him a crash course in some of the darker parts of human nature. The memoir of his years in the cult along with his other writing and podcasts, can be found at rwando.substack.com. Here he is now. I'm very happy to have Ruan on the show today. It is something that I've been looking forward to. This is an organization that I have wanted people to know about. And there haven't been people coming forward necessarily, although I have clients who I've worked with from this organization. But I think what we're going to talk about today is not just this organization, but also sort of in a broader sense, what can happen, what are the inherent dangers, and also hearing about your story. So it's a pleasure to meet you, and I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Uh, my name is Ruan Mipagala. Uh, I was in One Taste, the organization that Rachel just mentioned, for two years in my early 20s. In many ways, it was extremely beneficial to my life, even though some negative things happened as well. Uh, and I'm happy to speak about all of them. All right. And I'm glad you brought that up, that it, that it was positive and there are also some negative things because sometimes people will wonder why people stay in an organization that has some things about it that are not so great, or especially if they hear a news report or see something, because um, there, there have been, there's been more coverage about One Taste as of late. But so it, it sort of answers the question that there were some positives too. And then the question then becomes, were the positives worth it? That's the juggle that I think we have to figure out the sort of balance uh, in retrospect. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I've only been in one cult, but I think this is true for all cults. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I mean, I know some people have been in like five or six, but oh yeah, I mean, no one would join any organization if there wasn't a benefit. I mean, that's true for anything. 
You know, and I think a lot of people like to assume that it was pure trickery or the people who joined were just emotionally vulnerable or something like that. But really, you know, they did help me a lot, especially in the beginning. And I think they helped everyone who went in a lot. And then at what point it switched to a net negative kind of depends on the person. I have asked a lot of X1 tasters the same question, like, especially my friends who were in it for some time, who we all transformed in one way or another. Do you feel it was worth it? And a lot of people say no. I would say for myself personally, it was worth it. But I totally understand for a lot of people, that's definitely not the case. Right. So the people that I've talked to who are clients, of course, I can't disclose their stories and and who they are. But there was this sense of betrayal, of not being protected, of being encouraged to do things that in retrospect, they wish they hadn't been or an expectation that they were going to be okay with things that they hadn't really agreed to. And so it's left some people really wondering who they can trust and if they can trust themselves. And so it seems to, for some people, it leaves them feeling kind of shaky. Do you feel like that's something you could imagine with this group? Yeah. And I experienced it myself, especially the year to two years after I left, because before and after I was kind of obsessed with personal development and this is my career now. And at the time, One Taste was just another set of workshops I was taking. It went a different direction than the other workshops I took, but there's kind of like a basic line principle that to grow, you do things that are uncomfortable, which is kind of true. And I think all of us would agree that's the case in general, but things like that were taken to an extreme where you follow it thinking like, okay, I need to do this thing because I'm afraid of it. I need to do this thing because it's causing some internal resistance but then you don't really know where the line is anymore. And you're trusting this group that maybe has helped you the first couple of months. So why wouldn't they be right with this next thing, whether it's something extreme with money or sex or boundaries or anything like that? Right. So, you know, this adage of no pain, no gain is one that that's sort of what you're touching on, that if it's uncomfortable, you need to find a way to push through it. And that's going to help you get to where you want to go or closer to achieving certain goals or re realizations. Uh, but then the question becomes what kind of pain and is it worthwhile? And at the end of the day, is it what's most helpful to get you there? So before we jump into your experience, I'm just curious to know about you. So what was your life like? What were you doing before you got connected to this group? And what was the appeal of it for you? I joined when I was 24. I just turned 24 and the previous, let's say, 10 years, my adolescence and early 20s, I had a lot of anxiety. I was like in and out of depression. My regular life didn't feel so good. Not that anything was terrible, but I just had a lot of anxiety. And especially as a young person, I didn't really know what I was doing with my life. So in many ways, I was just I was looking for an adventure that would change me in a positive way. And I had tried many other things to like develop confidence with mixed results. So one taste was kind of just another one of these things. However, I was particularly touched because they focused on intimacy, not just physical intimacy, which of course is interesting to a young man, but also like, like real connection, which is something that a regular communication workshop didn't really help me with like on a deep level. And one taste did. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I'm curious also about the name one taste. Do you know why it's called that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, according to Nicole, who's the founder, it comes from a Buddhist proverb. I've searched for this a lot online and I haven't found it, but according to her, it's uh, uh, just as the ocean has one taste, the taste of salt, 
this path has one taste, the taste of liberation. And that's where it comes from. Uh huh. The idea of liberation, right, for a lot of people is going to be very appealing. Uh, sometimes the liberation, even from certain emotions, the depression and anxiety, but also it seems sort of just having the freedom to explore and to be people raised in controlled families or environments or religious groups are also going to, I think, really love the idea of being liberated from those constrictions. And so the idea of being free is often what is touted in groups and sometimes groups that actually limit your freedom without you realizing it, which is always the irony there. Okay, so you were dealing with some anxiety and depression, and so you were searching for something to make you feel better. And so what did you like about this particular group when you first got involved? Well, even before I got involved, I'd seen the founder's TED Talk. Uh, She had a TED Talk with the title orgasm in it, but of course it's not the way we think of orgasm. It's more spiritualized where she spoke about like really connecting with people, which is again, not something I really thought about before. And then in their intro events, which were these weekly evening events and in the initial class, it was all about like kind of extreme vulnerability, like verbally, nothing, you know, nothing physical at that point, but growing up in New York, I just was not used to that. And being a young man, I was not used to that. So it gave me this high of like, wow, like vulnerability with people and it feels good and it feels safe. And, you know, I'm feeling all this love, which I do do think on many levels was real. Like, I don't think the people I met, I mean, there were peers. I don't think we were trying to fool each other. It was just a new experience. And it was so different than my regular kind of mundane life. Yeah, I'm sure. Very different. And what did you think of the people you met when you first got involved? They seem to have something that I wanted, which was a lack of inhibition. I mean, to put it simply, you know, they were really expressive. They were really empathic. They seemed kind of fearless when it came to, you know, their emotional vulnerability. And I wanted that. So just hearing you talk about the positives, I think gives your story some unique credibility because it's not that you are kind of sour on everything, or it's not that you were turned off from the start across the board. It seems like then you can discern what was good from what was bad because you noticed some of the good and maybe still are thinking back on some things as good. Being able to learn to express yourself, yes, that is incredibly important. It's not necessarily welcome in many situations or many relationships. And it isn't something that people who are, you know, presenting as male are encouraged to learn to do. And it's really a shame. So how nice that you got to experience that and not only even learn the language of it, but test out those skills. I'm sure it was hard at first. Yeah, but you know, the community made it very easy. It's like, it would be hard to be vulnerable with my normal friend group or my working place colleagues in Manhattan to just like be vulnerable. But in this world, the norm was vulnerability. And that actually made it so easy to like open up. You can express yourself without really worrying about rejection. In fact, you were like so heavily rewarded for being vulnerable, which felt good anyway. So that's what also was great. I do do want to say one thing, like one thing that has kind of frustrated me about certain conversations about cults in general, and maybe about people in general, is like this tendency to put things in good versus bad categories. Like a lot of things are mixed good and bad. I mean, cults are kind of extreme where there's a lot of good and a lot of bad usually, but that's kind of the nature of all things, really. 
Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, you know, you think about something that might be good if it's used in the wrong way, or if you even a food that's good for you, if you have too much, you still are going to potentially get sick from it. So much of what I look at when I look at groups, isn't even so much the teachings as the intention of them. And for some people, when they're put in situations of vulnerability, that is strengthening and empowering. And it gives you a sense that you now can do this. But I always wonder what the ultimate goal is of that for the person in charge. And is it to put people in a compromised state? Is it to give people an experience that they haven't had before so that they feel indebted they feel like they can only get this here and then they become more dependent on it and it's harder to leave. That's where my mind goes. There's a phrase in the X one taste community that one taste would show you that your power and then sell it back to you piece by piece, which is like, they make you feel really good. And then you have to pay for it to keep, to keep feeling good, basically. Right. Exactly. To keep the high. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we, I definitely want to get to that, but I appreciate you bringing that up about good and bad and black and white. It's certainly not how I need to look at a group. And I'm also not concerned about people hearing this and thinking this is going to be an ad for a particular group. <laughs> it's really not. But it is to say that there are actual things sometimes that people get from groups. And then my mind, because of my profession, goes to, but at what expense? And that's usually the bigger piece of this story. Okay, so then tell me about sort of a day in the life of being in this group. Give us a sense of it. What did it feel like? What was a typical time that you would spend there? Well, there's different phases depending on how deep you were in and your lifestyle would be very different. Like I moved into their house in Harlem as like a big penthouse where we shared, uh, we shared our bed with someone of the opposite sex. And it was like, a, kind of like a, an ashram mixed with a reality show. We're also doing these like sexual practices and communication practices together. And for someone in that phase, like your first couple of months in the community, it's just a lot of fun and a lot of learning and a lot of growth and like, I'd say like 95% positive experiences. But at a certain point, as you've been there for a while, I mean, I was young, I was semi-employed. I had a lot of, it was just like, like being on a reality show, maybe six months in, I was employed by one taste and that was a totally different experience. It was like, okay, now you've gained so much. Now you have to give back. And in that phase, you know, We'd wake up very early. We would do practices together. Orgasmic meditation was their main thing, but also yoga and Bikram yoga, uh, somewhat ironically. Bikram yoga, uh, we'd eat breakfast together. We'd meditate. We'd do all these things that are generally good for you. And then um, as an employee, I'd basically be working until midnight on a regular day, seven days a week. And that also had a phase where it kind of felt really good and like we were really charged and it was exciting. But of course, we all burnt out. And then there were many months of like just doing a lot of things all the time, sleep deprived, really not feeling good and not having a clear mind either. But then we didn't really have working hours. Like we were always, you're, you know, because it had this spiritual um, framing, it's like everything you were doing wasn't work, but it was also work. Like anything that was work was also for yourself. Like it was very hard to distinguish what was what. And sometimes work was fun. And sometimes what you're doing in your regular life wasn't. So it was like, it was, it was all mixed up. So I was basically doing one taste things or things that one taste got me to do till midnight, sometimes one uh, every day. And it could be all sorts of things. Wow. Okay. So 
you know, I don't know if you've studied about other groups and sort of what is the same about this as you'll find in many other places, but sleep deprivation is a hallmark of many of these groups. And sometimes it is that you are being kind of given this challenge of being able to be strong enough to overcome the lack of sleep. And other times there's just too much to do and the schedule doesn't allow for it. But either way, the end result is the same, which is that it's really hard to function. And sometimes it's hard to think clearly. And most of all, it's harder to manage emotions. That's a difficult thing to be in over a long term because it really does impact you in every way. Is that something that you noticed about yourself? For sure. And actually... So long before one taste, I went through officer candidate school for the Marine Corps. And they would explain to us that they did the same thing for that reason. It was like to make us feel more, um, make us feel fear at a greater level when we're sleep deprived and make us a little confused and force us to work through that. Um, and I, even while in one taste, I did think about that experience. It's like, oh, this is kind of like basic training, but in a totally different setting, obviously. But in the beginning, it felt like, okay, we're, I'm growing as a person. I'm like, you know, I'd never worked. 18 hours a day before in anything. So it did feel empowering at first, but of course I burnt out. And and at certain points when I was less conscious, I just could not think clearly. And I didn't know what was right for me. And I always felt guilty when I rested. And, and uh, yeah, that was my reality kind of shifted by then. Wow. Interesting. So you had a history of that and it was explained to you. I mean, it sounds like with that, they were very open about their intention for that. Okay. And so what would happen if you didn't get everything done in one taste that you were supposed to do? Were you treated in a particular way? Part of their philosophy was being like, quote, feminine, as opposed to like the patriarchy. So like getting tasks done on a to-do list was seen as like too left-brained or too like quote masculine in their verbiage. So you wouldn't get punished for that. But if you weren't, basically, if you weren't feeling good and doing things that were beneficial to the organization as a whole, you weren't like directly punished, but you definitely lost approval, which was kind of how they did things. Um, And again, I've only been in one cult, but I do think there's some things unique about One Taste being a female-led organization and that nothing was explicit the way I've, say, read about Scientology punishments weren't explicit. But when you lost approval, it felt really bad. And that's kind of what drove a lot of the behavior of people. Interesting. Yeah. So I can't say across the board that that's always how it's going to be with people presenting as female as opposed to male. But there is sometimes more of that subtlety where you just know, you know, mom's disappointed (laughs) and it can be much more impactful rather than someone just yelling at you about something and you can feel more guilty. So it can trigger a bunch of other feelings. I'm wondering when you're saying about being punished. So there, there were things that you were supposed to do, but it also sounds like there are things you were supposed to feel that showed that you were devoted to this. Yeah. If you didn't, um, because the thing that they were selling uh, was, I mean, they called it orgasm. They they, they related it. They made it a little bit like chi in Chinese medicine, like your life force, you know. So if you didn't feel good, that was a bad look for the organization. Because even for myself going in, what really drew me to the people is that they all seemed so happy and they were all so relaxed and their pupils were dilated and they were like attractive, you know, in their behavior. Um, so that you, you kind of expect it to be like that. And we were even told that... Um, because you know, there's a lot of pressure to make sales. No one earned any commission. We all worked for less than minimum wage. All the money went to the organization. But we were always told that sales was a marker for how 
good you feel or sales was a marker for how much you know in their quote you know in their words how much orgasm you collected like how much life force you had so you know your ability to feel good and get people to buy things was kind of your measure of your spiritual path in a sense so it makes me wonder about nicole so before we continue on with your story what did you come to realize about nicole first what drew her to this whole idea and orgasm being the ideal and like chi that, that it was such a focal point and about her personality etc i'm kind of curious about her I mean, I don't know her full backstory, but um, one thing that she has mentioned and has been mentioned uh, in stories covering her, she was on a different path. She was studying spiritualities and Buddhism. And she actually, she tells the story in her TED Talk. She met uh, a man at a party who introduced her to an orgasmic practice. It, it wasn't orgasmic meditation. That was her branding, but it was a pre, like a precursor to that created in the 60s by Lafayette Morehouse, which is another group. And it is kind of her origin story. It, it uh, you know, connected her to her emotions. It gave her that experience that she would then, you know, sell to other people and deliver to other people. And uh, there's other r- random bits. Like I know that she, she, she said that she lived in a house with Richard Bandler who invented um, NLP. Yeah. So she, I mean, she was an NLP expert and she did certain things, not that I am, but she definitely did certain techniques that I was able to recognize and did them all the time. Um, actually, everyone who taught for, for one taste eventually, including myself, would unconsciously speak in her cadence, sometimes doing NLP techniques. And I only realized this after the fact, even though I had taught with this style of speech for a while. And uh, yeah, at some point she created one taste. Very interesting. And it's interesting about NLP. For people who have been involved in cults, they're often highly triggered by NLP practice. And there is something about it that impacts them or that makes them feel that they're being played and it feels too familiar. And there's some people who swear by it and say that they've been really helped by it, but within a certain population, it doesn't land well. And I feel like that's significant. And I say that just for people to be aware if they've been through these experiences and if they're going to be engaging in NLP practices, it might not be the best fit. Because there is something about it where you're causing people to feel something and to do something. And um, think people just don't like knowing that, that they could be back into a system that is doing that to them. But I think it's interesting with her. I'm wondering if it was the same with her as with other group leaders where making sure that she was happy with you was very important to the group and to you as an individual. Was that important? Oh, for sure. It's like the approval thing I, I mentioned, like in the hierarchy of one taste, her approval, of course, was the most important. Uh, and then, you know, it trickled down like the next layer, you know, her executive team, their approval was next important. And then there were city leaders and so forth. And it had a very familial quality. Like you mentioned the mother you know, comparison to a mother. It's like, I mean, my direct mentor at one taste literally called herself in kind of a cheeky way that she was my mom, but she did feel like my mom. Like she really felt like my mom. She was only a couple of years older than me, but like I did kind of seek her approval in the way that I would have as a small child with my actual mother. And um, yeah, I mean, in many ways, a lot of us kind of regressed to kind of more childlike behaviors, like looking for direction to the person, like one level ahead of us. Yeah. I want to explore that for a moment because 
that happens also that um, sometimes involvement in groups that tend to be kind of controlling in their way, where there is someone in charge who you want to please is pretty regressive. Now, sometimes we just do that. It's like young adults who've been living on their own and then they need to come back home for a period of time. They'll find themselves acting like preteens and they don't even know why it's happening. And they hear themselves saying, oh, mom, and they're thinking, well, I'm 25. Why am I talking like that? But you just go back into it at times. But within a cultic system or within a controlled kind of system where it's hierarchical, the people do at the top do become the parents very often and the others become the children. In fact, there was a group run by this man named Sri Chinmoy who used to run his group actually out of the UN. He rented some space there. So it gave him a lot of credibility. But he called his followers boys and girls even though they were adults they were they were full-fledged adults but he called them boys and girls and that was very much on purpose so he could be the father he could be the only adult in the room yeah and you see that even in like regular religions like there's the father and then there's god's children like it is in a sense like a normal way that like normal in a, in a sense of how people organize themselves because families are our first organization um, but yeah, I mean, I did notice like I really felt like a kid. I was 25 and I felt like a child. There was actually a part of that that I did find beneficial in that, you know, in terms of like, say, getting in touch with your inner child or looking at the world through wonder again, I did find that kind of went together. Like I did have some positives from looking at the world and being more playful, but that required me to trust someone else with uh, more rational decisions the way a kid trusts a parent. Very interesting. Right. And then I think about things that are presented as ideals and then also have an irony mixed in. And this is where sometimes it gets confusing and they're mixed messages. When you're in a system where for better or for worse, you go into a, a more regressed state or a childlike state, and then you're looking, as you're saying to the people around you for approval, I then go back to this quote, that's the origin story of the name of the group, that it's the taste of liberation. That's not the picture of liberation to me. When you're not doing anything until you can check in with someone else to see if it's okay, you're actually less free than you may have been before. You might not realize it at the time. Yeah, because it's easy to look at one aspect of being a kid of like, oh, I'm free to play again. I'm free to like not worry about things. But you only are able to do that because you see someone is like holding your container and you're only free within the yard. You know, <laughs> you can't leave. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. The gate is still closed and then you're free to go around in circles on your bike within the yard or whatever it is. Yeah. But that's how I felt my first six months where it, it really, you know, I've compared this to like Pinocchio's Pleasure Island where like anything I wanted to do, it was cool. And I could trust that this group was there that made sure that like I wasn't going to be outcast for doing something weird. Like we all were able to really be free spirits because the group was there containing us in a sense. How interesting. Okay. So I'm wondering also just the difference between genders in the group and was there any different treatment or different expectation of behavior based on gender? It was a female centric group, you know, female orgasm, the feminine in quotes, you know, and men were taught, which I do think is a, you know, there's positives and negatives to it, but men were taught that their role was to 
you know, serve the feminine and like be there. And even the orgasmic meditation practice is a, typically a man, a woman or a man, but usually a man stroking a woman's body uh, for mutual pleasure, which on the front end is great, right? To teach men empathy and um, to care about their partner's experience and things like that. Of course, everyone would agree that's a positive thing. But the deeper you went into one taste, if as a man, the more you kind of felt like you were put into a, like a servant role, not, not exactly, but it was always seen that the feminine way of doing things was better. And actually it was kind of an insult in one taste to be called too masculine. Like if you were too like thinking too left brain in a left brain way, someone would say, oh, you're being too masculine. And that was a bad thing, which is like, you know, very opposite of the conventional patriarchal world. If you'll, if you'll put it that way. Yeah. Oh, it's very opposite. I think about, you know, the messages that women and girls get all the time, you know, you're crying like a little girl or you throw like a girl or whatever, all the comparisons that are somehow in the negative and that women are somehow too emotional, et cetera, or being, you know, hysterical, all of the hysterical, histrionic, the whole, you know, kind of connection to us having a womb that is somehow at the basis of us being kind of unreliable emotionally. But I wonder about then the idea of kind of a male energy being seen as negative, how that would impact you. Because I think it's problematic in either direction to see one as greater or less than the other. Yeah, I think initially it was good because I was very disconnected from my emotions. But at a certain point, um, always deferring to someone who was more emotional is actually one of the things that I think stuck with me post one taste that has not been good in my life. Like kind of just like feeling like I need to make other people feel good, which is something I didn't, you know, it is something I think I picked up in one taste that wasn't uh, so good. Okay. And it hasn't been good for you in what ways? You know, feeling like it's my responsibility if someone uh, feels bad. I mean, I, I might be overgeneralizing, but uh, I have noticed that, especially like when it's a woman feeling like, oh, it's my duty as a man to be there for her feelings, regardless of what they are, even if they're chaotic. Because actually, one thing that I think a lot of women found freeing and was also had a lot of positive to it was that, as you pointed to, where women are punished for being emotional out in the conventional world, in one case, you're kind of rewarded for having chaotic emotions. Like they actually, they categorize people into three types. Um, this is Nicole's framing. They're hypervolatiles who express their emotions outwardly and tend to be chaotic. Uh, they're fixed people who do the opposite. Um, and the hypervolatiles were kind of the most celebrated, like being a chaotic, passionate, fiery person. Usually there's certainly more women who identified with that than, than men. And is that how Nicole was? Yeah. Okay. Well, it doesn't surprise me. I was sort of expecting a yes on that because often if a person is really taken with themselves, they will see themselves as the ideal. And that gets transmitted into, you know, the teachings of the group and the ways that people are taught to aspire to be within, for example, counseling and how this is different from a group like One Taste. I don't need my clients to be like me. I want them to be more the way that they would like to be for themselves. But it does often happen that people feel that they have to mimic the leader in order to get the kudos and positive reinforcement. And there's a lot of conformity 
to be a certain way because that is held as the goal. And so did you see that? Did you see people changing over time and all feeling like they needed to act more like her? Yeah, I mean, I saw this especially in women. Like any woman who got personality test result of hypervolatile, I think had a little bit of extra, you know, ego boost from that. And truthfully, a lot of us, including myself, were drawn to the organization because they taught emotional lack of inhibition. I was drawn to these people because they had this thing that I didn't, which was, you know, total freedom of expression and emotion. Yeah. And that's a good thing. That really is a good thing. As long as at the end of the day, the goal is that you get to be a way that works best for you in your world and in the world, not that you have to be like somebody else. But I wonder about more of your experiences and sort of where things started to turn. Basically the question, how come you're not still there? And you used a phrase about things being given back to you or sold back to you. And you know what, maybe we'll start there so you can explain that phrase. Yeah, it's the idea that early on in the One Taste community, of course, you feel really good. You realize there's a whole other way of being. You know, you have little glimpses of, you know, freedom of expression, whether it's in in your sex life or just in your regular life. But then there's the next thing of like, oh, but you don't, you didn't really get there yet. Like you need to take this next workshop or you need to move into the residence or you need to do more work in some way, which isn't easily, you know, it's an easy idea to buy. You know, if you try anything else, yoga, going to the gym, of course it takes time to have sustainable results. But the next thing is always a little bit more expensive in some way, whether monetarily or energetically or or both. Wow. Okay. So from what you remember, what are the different levels? Well, one way to frame it is through the, the courses. So the first course is a one-day course. It's 150 bucks. There were some in, in between courses, but the next level would be when you become a coaching program student which is $15,000 for a year long program. Um, and then they had later courses, which, you know, just were up and up in, in higher fees. You know, I think eventually they had a membership thing, which was like uh, for $60,000 a year, you can go to all, all of their classes. It is kind of on par with other personal development programs, like Tony Robbins programs cost that much, if not more, you know, yoga teacher trainings cost about that much if you go by like per day. So um, I think they were just following the market prices. The thing that I think was a little darker was that they got people who didn't have the money to pay for them too. Okay. So how did they do that? I'd seen sales conversations where they're literally opening up a new credit card for a young person because they needed, you know, they could put it on credit or a thing that, you know, so to touch on your other question, one of the things that kind of made me see, okay, this is not a place I want to stay was how um, they mix sex with sales. Let's just put it that way. Uh, I could, I could flush it out a little bit more, but one thing that would often happen was like, you know, a person would flirt with a person and get another wealthier person to pay for both of their courses. That was a kind of common thing. And, you know, they did sell sexuality. They did sell, you know, orgasm, good feelings, good chi, if you will. And uh, when someone feels really good, they're less afraid. If, if someone's like turned on or sexually aroused, they're less afraid of anything. They don't think about certain things. So it's very easy to say yes <laughs> to something when you, when you just have been feeling really good in your body. You know, I wonder about people who are in situations like this where they start to notice things that they are wondering about or they're not too happy about. Was there any place for you to go that was in-house where you could talk about your concerns or bring them up with anyone? Yes, but not. It wasn't actually as safe as I thought. I mean, the deeper you are in one taste, the more you shared information. And this is true for myself as I got, I went in deeper. So you know, when I was initially on the sales team, 
if I wanted to speak with someone who I kind of saw as a mentor or an older sibling about my issues with it, I would feel really heard and understood. And I think the person was being there for me, but then that information would pass on to other people. And later there'd be a story or a narrative that I wasn't developing enough. I had some sort of resistance around money or something like that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, people who have listened to my podcast in the past are going to know how I feel about the word resistance, that I think that it's a really problematic word when you're doing anything that has to do with personal development or sharing of yourself or your information, that if you are resisting it, there's usually a reason. And often it's valid. It could be temporary. It could be just that you need to feel safe to do it, or you don't know how the information yet is going to be used. And if it's going to be to control you or to come back to bite you, if it's going to be safe. So I think there are a lot of good decisions that people make along the way when they say no, or when they say, hold on, hold that thought. Let me wait. Let me find out first if I need to be doing this. But instead, when people are called resistant or they're showing resistance, it can very often feel like an insult and something you have to then prove that you're not. And then it causes people to share more faster than they, you know, would otherwise. So it sounds like there was this manipulation built into the system. Yeah, it's like what we were talking about earlier in that, of course, doing things that scares you is beneficial. And as you're pointing to, there are times that is that your fear is actually totally, totally valid. And there's a reason why you shouldn't take that leap. Um, but it's hard to discern. And again, when the other party, the authority is constantly saying, well, this is your next step for growth. Well, who's to say? Right. Who's to say? Yeah. So I wonder also, how were people talked about if they showed resistance or how were people talked about if they left? Depends on what level of resistance. Initially, is framed as like, oh, this such and such person is working through a certain thing and there'd be a lot of compassion. But if it lasted too long, it started to be kind of a frustration or like, why aren't you doing such a thing? And which leads leads into the next thing where if it got to the point where a person would not progress further, according to what One Taste wanted, they would actually be pushed out because they didn't want to keep anyone around who wouldn't... um, who wasn't down with the program essentially, because that created the liability as far as like the group think. So if and when someone, or when someone was on the edge of leaving and it didn't seem like we, the group could pull us, pull them back in, they were somehow pushed out, not like forced out physically or told they had to leave, but they'd be made very uncomfortable. That was actually my experience too when I, I left. Um, it was like, there'd be so much disapproval around you and like, so much coldness towards you to contrast the extreme warmth you got when you were approved of that it just became like it's like being at a party where everyone wants you to leave you're like okay i'm just gonna leave and then afterwards the story i mean like, almost an official story would be made about them of like such and such person was afraid to do such and such things so now they're demonizing us because we tried to help them become free actually the line that i heard many times was such as this person was afraid of freedom, so now they're de- demonizing what made them free, meaning that person now is angry at one taste. Um, and I'm sure that was said about me. I wasn't in the room, but I'm, I am I would bet on it that, that those words were said about me many times. And maybe still now that I'm talking about it, you know. How would it have impacted you at the time if you knew they were saying that about you? I knew. I mean, I had been on the other side enough that I knew... My second year, I was in there for two years. My second year, I was a little bit more aware of all the dynamics. I still chose to be there because I was having a good time and growing as a person. I was trying to balance out 
the good and the bad. But I knew that when I left, I knew this was going to happen. I'd seen it happen so many times. Pretty much in every group that I deal with, that is part of it, that there needs to be some explanation about why someone left. And it's never because of the group. I see that uh, often as a diagnostic tool when people want to know if a group is healthy or not. It's like being in an unhealthy relationship with someone who kind of just made it impossible for you to stay with them. And then the story they tell is that you just couldn't cut it or you bailed on them or you abandoned them or something. But I think whenever anyone is in a group like that, where they hear people talked about in a bad way who have left, it's really good to to know exactly as you did that then the same will happen to you. And then you want to wonder why, why is it that they need to have it be that it's everyone else's fault when they leave? It seems very protective, overly protective of the group and its reputation, but ultimately it's usually protective of the leader's ego because they don't want to necessarily have to take responsibility for the fact that someone who was devoted to them was treated a certain way to the point where they just couldn't take it anymore. And so, yeah, I think it's just statistically, it can't be that the reason everyone leaves something is because of them. <laughs> it's just not true. Yeah. It's like blaming all of your exes. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's a very uncomfortable thing when you have people turning on you, especially if it was so interactive and warm and open. And I'm sure it felt lonely. Yeah. And actually when I left, I thought I would do my best to prevent this from happening. I, you know, I met with my mentor, said, I love you guys. I'm so appreciative of this and that, but I need to do my own thing. I thought it was met really positively, as, as, as positively as I could have imagined that conversation going. But then she spent the next two weeks kind of secretly turning people against me. And then there was like this group meeting where she kind of like flipped it. It's like, she basically revealed that everyone was upset at me. And I was like, oh crap, like I'm alone. I'm alone in this house that I've lived in for a long time. Okay, I, I guess I'll leave. <laughs> you know, there's nothing, there's nothing else I can do. Wow. Okay. And so did it make you think back on all of your time there and wonder about it? Of course. And I think, you know, in the months that I was going back and forth of whether or not I wanted to leave, I was pondering that a lot. And I thought about staying longer. I knew the way back in was to kind of humiliate yourself in the eyes of the group to really show that you're committed. Like you couldn't just say, oh, I'm back, right? Like if someone was on their way out or did something that wasn't approved of of the group, they could work their way back in, like kind of doing, going through some sort of, uh, doing something that proved that they were really into it, like some sort of like service to the group, some sort of something that was kind of humiliating. And if they did that and proved that they were back in with the group, they'd usually be exalted and be like, oh, hey, look, this person was going in the wrong direction, but such person did this, this, and this, and now they're in an elevated position. And that was kind of like a model. And um, right when I was thinking of leaving, there was a person who was a little bit older than me. Uh, I kind of looked up to him as well. And he went through something like that. He was about to leave. He worked his way back in, humiliated himself. And he was like, oh, look at him. Like, why don't you be like him? It almost convinced me. I was like, oh yeah, if I just do such and such, I could be back in everyone's good graces but I decided not to. What made you decide not to? I don't have a clear, rational answer. I mean, it felt like a spiritual decision of just knowing this was not, this was not right. You know, I honestly did actually just hear a voice in my head saying, you're done. And I was like, okay. Wow. 
Right. I mean, sometimes it is just that inner voice where wherever it comes from, whatever the source is that says, okay, it would be, it could be easy if I wanted to just go back, but there is enough that's driving me to not do that, which means taking the harder road in that moment, the much less comfortable one. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, because obviously for everyone going in and in one taste, there's kind of like, is one taste a cult uh, discussion? And one of the things that was kind of a counter argument that a lot of people used was that one taste never separated us from other people. They, they, they might have encouraged us to bring our friends and family in. And a lot of people brought their mothers and siblings and everything. We were encouraged to call our mothers on Mother's Day and all these things that seemed so like, how could this be a cult? Like they just, t- they're telling you to spend more time with your family. How could this be a cult? But you're a different person. And it's not like you know, you're part of one taste reality. I was still spending time with my non one taste friends, but they definitely, I mean, they were of a different world. Like they were doing, they were living in the conventional world and I was living in the one taste world and we could talk, but we didn't really have a lot of the same experiences. So when groups want to make sure that people don't see them as a cult, they will very often pick the thing they do that they think sets them apart from being a cult. But not having a relationship with your friends and family outside isn't part of the definition for me. Because there are plenty of people who still live in in the home with their families and happen to be involved in a cult. It's about the nature of the relationship between the leader and the followers and the amount of control that exists in your own mind because of that leader. There are people who are married to people who are not involved in the same group, but they're very much in their cult thinking. Their spouse can feel it. Their spouse knows it, but they're still, you know, sharing a bed with somebody else who's not. So it's interesting that they held on to that as this way of defining that they were in a cult, but it's really not part of the definition. Yeah. I mean, when I was in One Taste, the One Taste reality was what was real and everything else didn't seem like I lived in New York the entire time. I didn't know who the mayor was. Like, I was surprised, like, what, like, Bloomberg's not the mayor? Like, I had no idea. I was living in New York and interacting with regular people, but I was so disconnected from the real world that anything that happened there was kind of, like, not real. In fact, the way we would speak about leadership in in one taste, you know, because there were different branches in different cities, we would say, oh, such and such person is the head of New York. And that, that, that was only something I realized afterwards, like, oh, you mean one taste New York? It's like, no, no, if you're in one taste, Of course, it's one taste New York. It's like, oh, they're the head of New York. That person's the head of San Francisco. Like, you don't think to even put the word one taste in it because it's obvious when you're in that world. Wow, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Okay. So I wonder also, while you were there, if there are things that you saw happening that you thought were problematic. And the reason that I ask is because of having clients who are in it who really either noticed things or things happened to them that were problematic and they didn't feel that there was protection for them built into the system. The few things I noticed in the beginning of my employment that uh, were fishy, like I, I did mention this already, but for instance, um, I would be asked to stroke a woman right before she had a sales call. And that was a very common thing. Like a woman would come to the residence, she'd have an orgasmic meditation session with me and then go straight into a sales conversation. And it didn't seem that weird on one level because that was a practice we all did. But on another level, it's like, oh, she's turned on right before she's about to be offered an expensive program, <laughs> right? I mean, and I did notice that at the time, but I was like, well, you know, may, you know, it's probably good for the person to have less resistance as you were pointing. You know, it, it was kind of confusing and it was just easier not to think about it in the beginning. 
And another thing that I noticed was around the freedom topic of, I remember specifically one young woman who was hired at the same time as me. And she had a basically similar arc. Like she came in a little inhibited. She became less inhibited, very positive thing. And then she had all these ideas of what she wanted to do with her life. She wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail. She wanted to travel the world. She wanted to do this, you know, things you do and you feel free. But that was demonized. That was seen as like, wait, wait, no, but you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to do this with your freedom. Like you're supposed to want, no, that's not your, we were told that what we thought we wanted was sometimes not our real desire. Instead, it was the thing that they could see for us, right? Oh no, what you really want is this, but you're afraid of it. You just think you want to do this because it's easy, which the the thing that, that was our real desire was always building one taste in some fashion. So, I mean, just even hearing you say that, do you know, no, 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 you don't want to exercise your freedom in that way. You want to only exercise your freedom in this way. Right. What? <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Just way more irony. It just slaps you across the face. Um, but in the moment, I mean, the interesting part is that we can look at it now and you have the distance to see it. But in the moment, I think you want the people who you've come to look up to, to be right or to be more right than you. And so you might listen to them and think you're still engaging in freedom of thought, but you're not. Yeah. And the whole reason why someone like myself would look up to them is because we've had, I had so many experiences where they were right and benevolent, like they could you know, feel my emotions and guide me towards the thing that was true. Right. And that was like one of the things that was such a, an eye-opening experience early on was like how accurate their empathic reads were like really feeling how I felt to the point where it's like, Oh, maybe you can feel me better than I can, then I can feel my own emotions. And I think in some cases that was true, but then when I have all of those experiences and they're saying, Oh, well, you actually want this, we can tell and then it becomes a little confusing. Yeah. Yeah. And then sometimes people will just go on kind of automatic pilot because someone else is driving and someone else is steering this. The people I've seen who I think were harmed the most were the ones who were really, um, really wanted to do good in the world. And which is really unfortunate. Like it was the cynical people who were a little bit better off, but the people who like really wanted to trust and have an open heart and help people, they're the ones who ended up doing the most extreme things, I think, uh, because they they put aside their own needs for benevolent reasons. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's very sensitive to, to think about it that way. I think you're right. So then going to the fact that you left and now for us to talk about the after effects of it, you already mentioned that, you know, you think you need to kind of take responsibility for a woman's feelings and maybe to an extreme. And yeah, that could be. I mean, there are many women I'm sure listening to this who would think, you know, I wish, I wish my partner of any gender it would think about, you know, what they did that they need to, if they need to right or wrong, or what is their responsibility in this and how they can make me feel better. But I think whenever anything is done to the extreme where there is this automatic assumption that's been built in that somehow this is your responsibility or your fault or whatever, that can be very difficult because then it's hard to read things situation by situation if that's your default. Yeah. And it goes by other names, like in the regular world, like codependence or and I work with men. Uh, nice guy syndrome is like the terminology for when a man has this too much. 
for me, like I, I did notice like in relationships post one taste, sometimes they took on a culty dynamic where I felt like there's always something I needed to do that was more uncomfortable. There was like the responsibility was always on me. And I think, you know, um, this is in general kind of a self-development trap where again, with a lot of things, it is good to take responsibility there, especially in social interpersonal dynamics. Like it's usually a good thing to take responsibility for what's on your end rather than blaming, but then it becomes almost like this automated thing, as you say, where you're always taking responsibility, like, oh, that person did something bad. No, 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 but I must have done something to trigger it. Yeah. And then your reality gets warped in the other direction. Right. I mean, I think it's always good to be open to the possibility that you might have done something to cause something to happen and to put it out there and say, if, if, if I participated in this in a bad way, you know, or in a hurtful way, please let me know. And to really genuinely be open to that, but to not make an assumption, to be ready to kind of skewer yourself. I mean, it's, it's hard because then you're going to be hypercritical of yourself, but also at times then you're going to attract people who enjoy taking advantage of that who like to not ever have to take responsibility for themselves. You know, yeah, there are plenty of people who love that. And so I'm wondering in general how it's impacted you in other ways in terms of relationships or, you know, if you found kind of this hangover from your time there. What I just mentioned is probably the biggest thing, or at least the thing is that I've noticed, you know, even years later in the short term after I left, like a lot of things were messy in my life where I just couldn't relate to regular people. Uh, I didn't understand any references because all the conversations I had were deep emotional, emotional ones. And I definitely just felt like there was a period where I just thought that I had ruined my life beyond repair. Like I had fried my brain. I was not able to get a regular job ever again, partly because I had a different outlook, but partly because I just was bored with regular life. Okay. Because it didn't have that same intensity. Yeah. I just thought like what everyone else was doing was kind of, it was kind of, I mean, my draw to one taste was that it was so exciting initially. Like there's always, always something interesting going on. So you talk about two things that I also hear uh, almost across the board, which is that people don't want to engage in small talk because they spent many years away from that. The conversations were meaningful. They were they had certain intensity. They were about revealing yourself and et cetera, which is different than just talking about the weather or whatever sports team is playing. And then this sense that you've been on a high, you've had the intensity, you've been going, going, going. When you don't have that anymore, you can fall back into depression and anxiety can start the things that you were dealing with before can start to creep back in because the group itself didn't necessarily fix those i think it just sort of gave you and it gives everyone um a full blown distraction from it but not necessarily tools to manage it i don't know if you felt that definitely actually there was a thing that one taster said about people who left which is that you kept your orgasm for about six months after you left and then it fades away, which is basically you kept your high going. And that was confirmed. I even for myself, like six months after I left, I still felt like I could, I still felt very magnetic. You know, I felt all of, all of those positive things, but at a certain point without the reinforcements of the group, I did like start to feel like, Oh, I'm back to where I started. And maybe I didn't actually become more confident. Maybe I was getting it from the group and it is, 
a temptation to go back. And I knew a lot of people who left and came back and left and came back for that reason. But uh, to the other thing you said around small talk, yeah, I never was into small talk. I was never good at it. Uh, I think one of the positives maybe is that one taste made me okay with that. (laughs) Like I'm okay. I mean, I'm okay with not small talking and maybe being awkward for the sake of depth. Uh, And maybe that's just, you know, maybe an arrogant way of, uh, you know, reframing things for myself. But yeah, it is something that stuck with me that I do like in general. Mm, Okay. Uh, When you talk about your emotional self after, it's hard because there can be a draw to want to be back in something that has that level of intensity, but then a real worry that comes with that. Like, do I want to you know, do I want to create something new in my life that is so different? That's such a departure. Or do I want to learn how to kind of be in my life and manage the feelings that come up, which is usually the the safer way to go. And so I wonder also if there is anything that you can take away from, and, uh, and the reason I ask this is I feel like there is, that you can take away from the fact that you just said, I'm done. There's something very powerful about that. And I would hope sort of confidence building about that because even with the high that you were in, there was enough that you were noticing that you couldn't ignore anymore. And there was enough that you were feeling that wasn't feeling right or that you were seeing that didn't seem right. And so you made something that was, I think, a really big decision, knowing also that that meant probably leaving the community and all these friendships and all these people that takes an inordinate amount of strength. And when you're put down for leaving, I don't think you get to enjoy how much strength that really shows. Yeah. I feel like as far as the things I gained from the experience, it comes in two categories. It's like what I learned from them and then what I learned despite, or what I learned from, from the hard parts. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, one other thing, I mean, I'm way more ballsy than I was before one taste. And it's partly because of standing up to them in different ways. Like I do feel very, I, I feel like I really developed a backbone from them and also despite certain things. Interesting. So how else did you stand up to them? Well, I, I've I've been pretty outspoken about my experience and I've gotten various forms of threats. Do you feel at liberty to talk about those kinds of threats and what's happened? Yeah. I mean, one thing is after the Bloomberg article in 2018, uh, they hired a private investigator who then kind of posing as a lawyer started harassing my parents by voicemail. And honestly, that was, you know, I've been open about speaking one taste and I I try to, as you can see, I can, I try to speak in a neutral way, right? There are goods and there were bads. And this, this is, this is my hope or goal. But yeah, when when they did that, I was like, okay, you've turned me into an enemy. Like, I feel no reason to defend you. But truthfully, I mean, there are people, perhaps uh, individuals that you work with that are way more negative about one taste and you have, are, have been harmed way worse and have way worse things to say, but uh, they just are not able to speak up. Right. I mean, my my exposure to people within groups is often going to be a self-selected group. These are the people who feel that they really need counseling from what they've experienced. So it's reached that level. So yeah, I'm only going to hear those stories. And that doesn't mean that happens all the time, but it means that that's possible. And so that's important enough then for people to know about. And so what prompted you to want to take your experiences into the public realm? I feel like it 
is a unique story in that I kind of I do want to get across the philosophical method message to the world that you know cults aren't this weird. I mean, they're a little weird, but they're not this thing that's so different than other social things. They're just insulated, right? I mean, this this is maybe not a popular opinion, but I think almost all groups that function well do have similar cult dynamics. Maybe they don't take it to an extreme. Cults are kind of like a, a hyperbolic version of a of a group or a family. And I think the reason why they work is that they run on our evolutionary instincts to be as a part of a clan that's really close and maybe has a leader and maybe has, you know, an elder that we look up to. And that in itself is normal, but in our modern world, it's easy for someone to take advantage of those things. Very much so. Very much so. There's a quote by Eric from, uh, basically I'm paraphrasing, but common customs and beliefs bring people together and save them from isolation. But really part of that quote by him is kind of no matter how absurd, no matter how out there, still there is something about being connected that is fundamental to us and to our survival. And yeah, that is true. People will take advantage of that. I think that's probably why disconnection and shunning and all of those things, cutting people off are the things that are used almost all the time in groups, I think, to dissuade people from leaving because they know how powerful, how devastating that's going to feel. Yeah. And you see you see the same things happen in non-cults as well, in political parties and clubs and in casual friend groups, like not to that extreme, but it's the same things that happen all the time. Right. Okay. So now you are... You're out there telling the story and I'm wondering how people can find the content that you're putting out. And if people wanted to be in contact, how could they do that? Yeah, I've decided to serialize my book. It's on Substack, ruando.substack.com, telling my whole story from start to finish over there, along with other things about uh, cult experiences. Wonderful. Where has your life taken you since you've left? Yeah. I, I mean, I started coaching and working in personal development. I did take two years off just to divorce myself from what I thought was unhealthy. But yeah, I mean, I'm still, I, I work with men. I work with people on relationships. My podcast is all about personal growth in the mind and having healthy relationships and a lot of things that I did learn at One Taste. I just try to extract uh, the beneficial stuff from it. All right. Well, it was a pleasure to talk to you and I'm really happy that you're getting to teach people about what can happen, what people can get from things like this, but also what can go wrong. I'm sorry that you were put through an experience of, you know, where you were really devoted to something and then kind of abandoned or spit out. Glad you've been able to move beyond that and then use this for good, for education and also for your own work. So I wish you well with all of it. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rachel. Of course. My pleasure. One more thing before you go. It is not very typical to be able to interview a man who has been in a more matriarchal kind of cult. Typically, there are a lot of women I talk to who are in patriarchal cults. This is quite a turnaround. It was really good that Ruan was able to be in touch and we could have him on the show. There is something really powerful about how he talks about his time being good, where he learned some new things, he gained some insights, he found a way to kind of relate to people 
and relate to women and connect with them in new ways that he could take out into the world. And, you know, I am not worried about getting that message out on this podcast that sometimes people have good experiences, but the whole reason people contact me for counseling or contact me to be on the podcast is because things turned, things went south at some point. And so a lot of people will ask me, do I need to get rid of all of it in order to heal, in order to move on? Do I have to get rid of all the teachings? Do I have to abandon everything that I've learned? Do I have to kind of put it away, put it aside so I can start fresh? And for some people, the answer is yes. And for some people, the answer is no. If it's yes, and I'm advising them to kind of take some of those things that they've learned and really put them aside, it's because those things have left them confused. Those things that they're holding on to have made them interact with people in a way that might not be so socially appropriate outside of the cult. Some of those things that people hang on to might make them feel differently about themselves in a way that's highly punitive or that so much of their focus is in pleasing the leader. And so they might be still thinking, how can they act in their life in a way that would make this person still happy with me, even though I'm not there anymore? And for those people, I say, yeah, it is actually time to do some spring cleaning, time to really move it all aside. But for others who say, listen, I, I got over a fear while I was in the group or I got over my fear of public speaking because I had to get up and talk to people or I had to go door to door. If that's something that has left you with a greater skill set and a more usable skill set in the world outside than you had before, then most definitely hold on to it. The only way I think for you to know, though, if it's negatively affecting you, is if while you're utilizing those skills, you can't shake the memories of your time in the group, who taught you those skills. It brings you back too much. But that'll be trial and error. You'll see what happens. When Ruan talks about what he got, you know, as I talk to him about and I'll talk to you about, one of the things that I focus on with people is not even so much what they got, but what they gave up in order to get. What sacrifices did you need to make in order to receive this, whatever this gift is that you feel happy to have gotten from this group? And if the sacrifice is so great that it's like a sense of self, or it's the ability to make decisions on your own, or feel confident about yourself, it's your ability to know how to be in the world and interact with people in a healthy way, and that sort of has all gotten cloudy, then no matter how much gain you got, it's still ultimately not worth all the losses and all the confusion. There can be so much confusion when people come out of groups like this, because on the one hand, I value the fact that people want to learn how to interact with people of same or different gender in a way that feels more aligned and feels more sensitive feels more attuned. But when there is the philosophy that it's the same thing for everyone, where everyone needs to learn this because it's what all women want or what all relationships need, then of course you're going to have statistical failure. It just can't be possible across the board. I would never say that a technique that's useful for one client is going to be useful to all the others. And one piece of information that's salient and relevant to one person is going to be relevant and important to all others. But within a cultic system, that is often what they say. There isn't flexibility in the teaching. 
And so you need to conform to the ideas and the ideas that often don't change and that are pervasive, that apply to everyone. Nothing applies to everyone when you're dealing with human beings, especially relationships and people of different or same genders. There's so much variation. I'm so happy that Ruan was able to take this last period of time, this stretch of years, to be able to write down what he experienced and to be able to share it. And I value that we get to hear from another perspective, from someone who can talk from a male perspective, from a matriarchal group. It's really, again, unique. And I think it's very important for people to realize that this happens too. There are also different things that he touched upon, just kind of different ways that he was abused, I think, ways that are more subtle than, let's say, physical abuse. But sometimes when you're left feeling that somehow you can do harm to someone else by virtue of how you interact with them physically, or that you need to be a certain way with your body, with other people, and and that's the only right way, you then have a hard time, I think, going out, having a regular dating life, knowing what's okay, knowing how you should be making the other person feel, knowing how you should be feeling. There's so much that gets woven into your psyche. And again, a lot of people who come to me will say, okay, I actually think I need to make a list of all of the things that I was told. And can you go through this list with me and tell me if any of these are quote unquote normal? If these are the ways we're supposed to be thinking about ourselves and thinking about our partners, this is right as a way to interact with our partner. And it's a very helpful thing. So it's something I've talked about before on the podcast, and I suggest you do it too. If you've been in a situation, in a relationship, in a cult, where you were told so many things about yourself and you just don't know if they're true, write them down and check it out with someone whose opinion you trust and see if you need to be worried about these things, if you need to be thinking these things, or if they were given to you as thoughts because they helped to control you or they helped to make you feel bad about yourself and then dependent on the group to make you feel better about yourself. You want to understand what those teachings mean, but also why they were given to you and how they serve the purpose of the group and not you. There's so much untangling. I know sometimes it's hard, but you'll get there if you continue with this process. And hearing people like Ruan and others talk about their experience and how it started out positive, but then started to unravel is a very important thing too. People will say, the group that I got involved in was very different from the group that I left because it changed over time, or actually it revealed itself more over time. And the leader revealed him or herself more accurately over time. Thank you to Rowan, and I'll talk to you all next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www dot podpage dot com forward slash indoctrination.